You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Tuesday, October 20, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Hedge Fund Telemetry's Tom Thornton. But first, with the day's stories, Haley Drasnan. Hey, Ash. Well, we saw markets rise on Tuesday after a rough Monday. The Dow, NASDAQ, and S&P 500 all rebounded from yesterday's sell-off as lawmakers continue efforts to reach a spending bill. A package must be agreed to today in order for it to pass before the November 3rd election. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says differences with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin are narrowing in stimulus negotiations. However, that does not mean that a bill will be able to pass in the Senate as Senate Republicans are still resisting the price tag on it. President Trump and the White House have increased their package proposal to $1.8 trillion. Senate Republicans still think this is a bit too high, whereas Democrats would like to see it around two to $2.2 trillion. Investors can expect more volatility given an increase in COVID cases that we're seeing play out here in the United States, as well as in Europe. The economy needs some support and the markets need some form of guidance. In recent weeks, we're seeing the markets have swung a lot in every twist of these talks. If the stimulus negotiations do pass, I think we'll continue to see stocks rally. But if the negotiations do fall apart and we can't get it passed before the election, I imagine that it'll be likely there will be, you know, a short lived sell off in stocks as well. Another interesting story that I wanted to cover today is the U.S. Department of Justice antitrust lawsuit of Google, uh, allegedly accusing them of abusing their power, um, specifically for the tech giant's dominance in online search. Shares of Alphabet, Google's parent company, actually edged higher, though, on Tuesday following news of this lawsuit. This is all on top of a handful of corporate earnings that were announced this week. Procter & Gamble, we saw their shares rise, maybe even being the best organic sales growth since 2005. This rise was in fiscal first quarter earnings and boosting its guidance. Lockheed Martin, on the other hand, we saw some of their shares fall after the aerospace and defense contractor reported third quarter revenue that beat estimates and raised its full year outlook. And we're keeping an eye on how Netflix performs when it releases its earnings today after the markets close. Now turning to UBS, the world's largest wealth manager reported its best third quarter for a decade. Net income came in at $2.1 billion. That's a 99% jump from the same period a year earlier. This is surprising as its profit for the second quarter saw a 11% drop. You know, this is the first of the results for the European banks. Last week, we saw a number of U.S. banks perform greater than expected. Global coronavirus cases are now exceeding 40 million and showing no signs of it slowing down. Several European countries are imposing new restrictions, especially on business activity and travel. Another story that I wanted to share with you all today was 
Fed Chairman Jerome Powell. He's taking a cautious approach to possibly issuing digital currency. Yesterday on an IMF panel, he pointed to potential benefits, including faster and less costly international transactions. But the Fed must also consider the risk of cybersecurity, counterfeiting and fraud, as well as the impact on monetary and fiscal policy. You know, this comes as more central banks are really stepping up their research on the costs and benefits of central bank digital currencies, which would act as a supplement to existing national currency. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell yesterday uh, had said, and I quote, it's more important to get it right than to be first. This is because of the dollar central role in global financial transactions. And I want to point out, you know, Ral's expert view on all of this yesterday, where he talks about the recent tidal wave of interest in central bank digital currencies. And Ral says he sees that central bank digital currencies are really the killer of stablecoins and the start of a new era in the world of monetary and fiscal policy. You know, this is the first major step at technology eating away at the traditional financial world. And on that note, back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Tom, welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure to have you here. Nice to be back. So, Tom, what are you looking at today? Here we are. We have, uh, we're hitting the peak of uh, earnings uh, this week into next week. And I think that this is going to be a market that is going to look really close at third quarter earnings. And I've been thinking uh, economic reports that we've had have started to plateau uh, starting in September. And will earnings start to plateau as well? Uh, I'm looking right now at Netflix. It's down 5 or 6%. Uh, after hours, didn't look like a very good report. Uh, Texas Instruments is up a little bit. Uh, they usually are a very good tell for the semis. So let's talk a little bit about earnings then. Uh, tell us what your view of uh, 3Q is, what have we heard so far, and whether you think we're uh, at par uh, or you see a differential. Well, so far, I think the earnings beats have been uh, a little stronger and the problem, though, is the stocks aren't getting rewarded for those beats. And that's been a, a problem that I've seen a few other times. I, I think uh, it was like the first quarter after the stimulus, uh, no, excuse me, not the stimulus, but the big tax uh, cut was announced. Uh, the stocks were blowing away earnings, but uh, the stocks um, didn't respond uh, favorably. So that's sometimes a sign that things are getting priced in. And we had a huge third quarter uh, for the market. We've had a huge move uh, from March. So I think, you know, it's now it's important to watch where things are if we start to see a topping pattern. Usually Q4 uh, sees a rebound, but uh, we could see a pullback first and um, and then we'll go from there. We do have the election and I don't, I'm not getting into politics, but uh, that always could be a little bit of a uh, catalyst there too. You can't go wrong by avoiding politics in 2020. I'm not talking politics today. So, but let's talk about something that is, uh, a, you know, a first cousin of politics, which is what's happening with the stimulus. What are your thoughts there, uh, and what's the impact in terms of U.S. equity markets and other risk assets? Well, we're 
we're unfortunately addicted to stimulus, Fed intervention, uh, fiscal um, fiscal stimulus. Uh, it's. I wrote the other day uh, that on the anniversary of the '87 crash, and actually uh, it was the the 20th of October uh, that Greenspan came out with one line basically in support of the Fed uh, ensuring liquidity for all the financial institutions. And I think right then uh, that did it. That was where the market said, okay, the Fed has our back. And I don't think the market has ever let uh, that down. I think Greenspan saw the benefit of him coming in and injecting liquidity or saying that they're going to inject liquidity. I think the, the market has just become completely um, addicted to stimulus. We can't live without it. And now there, it's like a kabuki theater of, are we going to get a stimulus package? Is it going to be, you know, 1.8 trillion? Is it going to be 2 trillion? It doesn't matter. Uh, it just gets bigger and bigger and we're bailing out more people. And I think there's going to come a point, don't know when, but it's going to end and it's not going to end well. And the growth in the economy is going to slow because of all this debt. And yeah. all these people that look at MMT, I think it's just a, a, a very lazy way of bailing people out. And I think it's, it's, it's a moral hazard, which people don't talk about as enough. So the question is, obviously, uh, this is a long-term 30-year secular trend. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a debt bomb that's coming. But if you've been short these markets, even since the beginning of COVID, you've gotten whacked. How do you play these markets in this time? Right. I, I'm not, I'm not sure at the markets. Um, obviously, uh, that would be just a complete disaster. Uh, and I'm not playing for the debt bomb to explode. I think it's going to happen in small explosions and then we'll start to see things unwind. And I don't know when that will happen, but as far as, uh, how I'm looking at the markets, I will play the, the ebbs and flows and, take advantage of the the 10% pullbacks, the 10% lifts, um, sector rotation, which I think is going to be a real theme for 2021. So I, I don't know when everything's going to come to a massive end with that. I don't really want that either, um, honestly, because I think it's going to be rather painful. We'll probably yeah. see things happen outside of the U.S. that will start to affect the U.S. I don't think the U.S. is going to be the debt jubilee uh, initiate their own debt jubilee. I think you're going to see some other smaller countries uh, initiate those uh, debt jubilees first. But uh, you know, right now I, I'm I'm just I'm, I'm trying to just stay even, uh, go with the ebbs and flows in the market. I think that's really the most important thing everybody can do. Yeah. Tom, maybe we could zoom the camera out a little bit and you can give us a better sense of your framework and how you think about time horizons. I think one of the most critical uh, challenges uh, that people who are new to the investment space have is understanding uh, that you can be, you know, you can be long term short and short term long and all of these sort of imbalances that come from not understanding uh, how people think about trade horizons. The decades of experience that you've had investing and trading these markets, what are your thoughts? How do you think about time horizons? Well, I, I look at a lot of time horizons and I, I recommend people looking at in the, the shorter term, I, I look at on my charts every day in front of me are 15 minute charts. And those are I use for intraday trading, enter, entry into positions. 
I look at daily, I look at intermediate weekly timeframes, and I don't necessarily look at a lot of monthly charts because I think it's oh, there's a lot of wiggle room in there. But I will also take a framework of saying, okay, we have a long-term uh, weekly chart that is moving in this direction. Um, I will play it with a daily, and the dailies obviously will move uh, in advance. I risk manage around the daily charts. Uh, so, for example, if I'm long a position, I get a nice gain. I'll take some off and then add some back on dips if I like that position. But I think it's really important that when you see a really persistent trend, let's say the the fangs, um, I tracked the fang stocks all summer. Uh, they were just completely moving in the right direction up and everybody was just, this is the greatest thing. But I ran a uh, trend line on those. And as soon as those trend lines broke, uh, then these became uh, a liability in people's portfolios. And you could see it on the daily, and then you can also see it on the weekly. And I like to see when, if you have a real reversal, uh, you see a four-week low on a weekly chart. If that happens, I think that uh, then you could be really be seeing a, a longer-term uh, or intermediate-term uh, pullback. So my time horizon uh, varies, but I would say that it it is between two and five weeks. Uh, those are the time horizons that I'm looking for. I think that gives enough time for a trade to develop or a trade not to work and you can exit out of it. So that's that's really how I tend to look at things. I'll trade around things. I'll be in and out of things. But uh, for the most part, I try to stay in things longer than I, um, I, I try to stay in things as long as possible. Yeah. And what are the trend lines that you look at? Well, this has been a very easy year for trend lines because you look at the, the bottom in March and you just run them up into August and anything that's broken those trend lines. I think right now a really big um, pattern that I'm looking at is a lower high developing right now with the markets. And that is an Elliott wave. Uh, the first move down in September was the first wave. Then we have a lower wave wave two corrective wave, which doesn't make a higher uh, high over the August highs. And then if we break those levels, that would be into the third wave down. And if you go back to 1987, uh, we did have a, we also had a lower high uh, and it failed. And then it broke those, uh, the previous lows uh, on the first wave down. And then it really became unglued. I'm not saying we're going to see another type of situation like that. I'm not predicting a 1987, but I certainly think that there could be a risk-off moment if we do break those September lows. So I think anybody that's watching their charts, it's very simple. Keep it simple. Look at the the uh, the September lows. If we break those, I think we're going to have real risk in the market. Yeah, I mean that's a very straightforward answer. Uh, what what do you think in terms of the probability? of seeing that occur are right now, or is it just impossible to determine based on where we are in the pattern? Well, we've been dropping for several days uh, from last week, and I'm looking at the five-day rolling returns, and they're starting to turn negative. The one-month rolling returns, which I look at as well on a bunch of different factors and markets, those are still positive because we bottomed, I think, on the 24th of September, so as we start to roll into a little higher next week, 
uh, those returns are going to start to soften a bit. And when people see their returns uh, are not as good after a month, and let's say we do break those September lows, I think people become very motivated to sell. They don't like holding things that they're down in. And if they're holding things, um, I mean, people always sell lower. I always tell people it's people don't sell high. They, they, they sell lower, they panic, they sell, uh, and the panic always brings in larger volume on the downside. Mm. Yeah. And with that, I should say, uh, today's market is fractionally higher. Uh, the Dow Jones industrial average, S and P 500, NASDAQ, uh, and Russell 2000 all up, uh, between 0.25% and, uh, 0.47%. The leader on this was the S and P 500 closing up 0.47% at 34.43. It's also interesting that we're seeing a little bit of a rotation uh, back to some value as well. Uh, this pullback uh, in the market, uh, we've seen financials and energy uh, pick up a bit, and the regional banks actually had a really good day. I'm long the regional banks, I'm long XLF. Uh, I like several, you know, a handful of the large financials. I think they uh, they have opportunity on the long side. It's not easy. I think that the, the seeing interest rates go up is uh, giving it's giving people a little bit of confidence that uh, that, that will help the financials here. Uh, energy stocks. I'm starting to see a lot of mergers occur. Uh, we saw. I think um, Concho was bought out. We have uh, what is the other one? PD. Um, Okay, everybody's saying I know that one, but that you know we're seeing some small ones get bought, and we're also I'm I study insider buying, and I'm seeing insider buying uh, and a bunch of different financials out there. So I I think there's going to be a big consolidation wave uh, in financials just to survive, and I also think if Biden gets in, I think it will be a positive for the financials, or excuse me, well financials and especially energy. And I, I, a lot of people will say, well, why would you think that? But I think he's going to put restrictions on drilling and less drilling, higher prices. And I think that will help the energy sector. Uh, I mean, everybody thought that with Trump, I'm getting, you know, getting into politics, Ash, don't get mad. Uh, but everybody thought, you know, with Trump coming in, it's going to be great for all the, the, the industrials and the, the energy companies, it's his best friends. But it's been absolutely terrible because they've they've drilled more. There's a ton of supply out there. So if we can limit supply or limit supply, keep demand relatively stable, uh, I think the energy stocks could uh, benefit from that, which I think is a contrary trade. And they've been awful. So it's you know all bets are off if uh, these things um, you know break some new lows. Yeah, it's an interesting thesis. Energy Select Spider uh, XLE up today 1.18%. Uh, up, uh, you know, whatever that is, uh, three or four times uh, more than the, uh, the, uh, the than the indices on the equity side. Yeah, it's it's a big little value rotation today, and I, you know, maybe it's the the um, mergers that are happening. I think Halliburton's earnings were okay. Uh, Schlumberger the other day was was okay, not great, but uh, those stocks rebounded after uh, falling a little bit. So. I don't know. I kind of like these. I, I kind of see the value in these. And again, if the supply is constrained, 
uh, and fracking is uh, curtailed in a little bit. I, I think these things can work. Yeah. Once again, slightly bigger picture question to leverage some of your decades of market experience. How do you think about sectors and what are the ETFs or other mechanisms that you look at as proxies for uh, those sectors and that rotation that we've just talked about? Well, I look at all the main, I, I, I look at things top down. So I look at all the, the major uh, e sector ETFs. I have a list of 165 ETFs that I look at. Uh, so I look at you know where things are moving. And one of the things that I like to look at from a technical point of view is I rank all these ETFs uh, by percentage above or below the 50-day moving average. And it's a monitor that I created when I worked at my hedge fund for one of the partners because he said, look, I need you to force rank your favorite ideas. So I, I said, okay, I'm going to make something up mechanically that works. And so you could see things work in that range. So, for example, remember everybody loved gold stocks in the summer and every, you know, GDX and GLD yeah. and silver were just ripping. These things got so far over the 50-day moving average. And I can chart that and say, oh, my God, it's just, it's, it's, it gets too well overdone. But now those are down. Um, I think the, yeah, the SLV is now down 4% below the, uh, 50 day moving average. It was, I think, 28% above the 50 day moving average. So I see these rotations happen. So I look at a lot of different sectors and, and energy has been absolutely on the bottom for, I think, at least nine months. And now they're starting to pick up. Um, we're, the XOP is above the 10 day moving average. Uh, you're starting to see that those start to move. You see those move over the 10-day moving average and then the 20-day moving average. Uh, yeah, the XOP is above the 20-day moving average as well. Uh, it's still 9% below the 50-day moving average, so I, I think there's a mean reversion there. Mm -hmm. But that's a start. That's what I like to see. Um, I'm also looking at like XLY, uh, which the consumer uh, discretionary just ticked under the 10-day moving average. It's only above the 50-day by 3% uh, with the average of all the sectors I look at uh, being around 3.5% above the 50-day moving average. So I am I see rotations when I look at ETFs. Uh, and then I can also, within those ETFs or sectors, I can see what stocks are leading in the same framework with percentage above the 50-day moving average. So it's it's top down, top down all the way. And that's how I look at the sector rotation with ETFs. And right now, um, you know, we'll see if this can last. I, you know, re remember one thing also, se uh, seasonality for energy stocks is awful in Q4. So I'm a little skeptical that these will last, but We'll see. With an election, uh, there could be some new policies. It could be some, you know, shakeouts. But I, I, I'm kind of sticking with these for for right now. Yeah. So you're just looking at a 50-day simple moving average on these. Yeah. And and I, but I want to see them. I I want to see the the sector ETFs, uh, move above the 10 and 20-day and or move below. I mean, I I short I short them as well. So, but right now I'm I'm fairly long the market. Uh, I've taken some profits on some of the recent longs over the last couple of weeks, but I think that uh, you know 
it's, it's kind of a hold your nose and, and stay long in the market right now. Yeah. One of the things I'm curious to ask you about, Tom, is the way that you think of that long, short balance. I mean, I said earlier when we were off camera that uh, you're a man with more nerve than I have uh, to go short these markets when you're when you're fighting the tape and fighting the Fed and fighting uh, fiscal stimulus. How do you think about that? And how do you think about those risks? How much higher of a conviction do you need to go short in markets uh, when you're when you're potentially, as I said, fighting those very powerful forces? Well, it's not easy to to short stocks or indices in a market that's, you know, supported by the Fed and the market that right. perceives that there's stimulus coming or sees that yeah. there's huge liquidity injections all over the world with central banks. It's not easy. But I look at a lot of different technical things. I look at DeMarc indicators that um, expect ex exhaustion signals on the upside. I'll, I'll shoot against those. And if I'm wrong, I'll stop out and move on. And a lot of times um, you can get an exhaustion signal right now on Netflix uh, a week ago, and now it's down 6%. And it, it, it's, it, it's, it's a fine craft that uh, I learned. Um, when I worked at my hedge fund with uh, some of the best uh, short sellers, and if you think I have nerve, uh, they have they taught me a lot about uh, shorting, and they had unbelievable nerves to just drinking uh, their coffee after hours and selling five hundred thousand cues. Uh, <laughs> like nothing, you know, oh, you know sell five hundred cues, you know, oh, no problem. <laughs> after hours. Get a market from Goldman. Yeah, okay. Five cents. Okay, no problem. <laughs> That's what we did. That is uh, quite the high wire act, isn't it? <laughs> it's ner it, it took nerves. It was uh, a good time. So you mentioned DeMarc indicators. For people who are relatively new uh, to technical analysis, why are DeMarc indicators, and I know you've talked about them before, uh, at least in passing, why are DeMarc mm -hmm. indicators such a powerful tool for you in terms of the way that you see, um, you see markets? Well, Tom DeMarc created these indicators that uh, he has about probably 100 different indicators, 70 that are available, uh, that, that calculate periods of, of exhaustion uh, in the markets or in an individual security, commodities, currencies. Uh, and it really works to my personality that I like to look uh, for peaks and bottoms. And I've been able to use the indicators when you get a DeMarc 13 exhaustion signal, which he developed also by hand on paper in the 70s. Mm. And then computers came around and he looked at it and said, actually, this works. Uh, you, you can really use those indicators and say, okay, I'm going to buy this uh, particular stock or whatever at this price and use a stop below it if I'm wrong. And they really do work fairly well. When they don't work, I hear about it. Uh, when they do work, uh, usually it's pretty quiet. Nobody just really matters. But uh, it, if you don't have the indicators, it's really difficult to understand how they work. There's a lot of if ands involved here. But I've used them for over 20 years. Uh, I feel really confident integrating those into my process with other in technical indicators that I use. I, I also look at market sentiment. So when it when they work, they work well. Uh, 
And when they don't work, you also know, and that's a real good tell uh, to, you know, move on. Again, I used like the FANG stocks were going up all summer. I had several DeMarc indicators that pulled back 3% or the market pulled back 3% and that was it. People said they didn't work. They actually did. They were telling you that it was a really strong trend. Mm. Um, I mean, it was, you know, and then, you know, sometimes the market will get to this, you know, place and it'll hovercraft and just sort of, you know, levitate here. Um, and I think that that, um, that also is a big tell. So it, it, it like one, one thing I'm looking at right now, um, copper, copper went up, levitated, uh, went sideways with exhaust signals. It was just basically tired and now it's starting to make another move. So I, the DeMarc indicators are telling me that it's, it's, it's possible to make another move higher with copper. So it's, it's things like that. So, uh, I have actually, um, tried to explain on my notes uh, how they work in real time and it takes quite a while to understand them and uh, see when they're right and when they're wrong so that that's basically um, what I've, I've done with them but I like them because you can kind of shoot against a, a top or a bottom and if you don't have the indicators on your screen you think that they're just like you know what are they looking at but they tend to work pretty well yeah, I know that Rao follows remark indicator, uh, mark indicators on uh, several uh, on several uh, different dimensions, and I think it's it's interesting to have that conversation. Yeah, we actually um, so Bitcoin today uh, has an upside exhaustion thirteen today, and I know everybody's very interested in Bitcoin. Yeah, I don't trade Bitcoin, but I I I follow it pretty closely for uh, our subscribers and. The DeMarc signals have actually been really, really good with uh, with Bitcoin. And they, yeah. they one day after the peak, I think it was in 2017, I said, I you know, I don't know anything about Bitcoin, but I got this DeMarc signal happening here. And basically it went down to, I think, 3,000. And at 3,000, we actually got signals as a buy. And recently in the 10,000 level, we, we had an, or 11,000, we got another sell signal. I, I was speaking with Raul on Twitter on it, and uh, we went back down to 10,000. And now we have another upside sell signal. I'm more neutral on it because I think that there's a longer term, as you said, daily and weekly. I think there's a longer right. term upside exhaustion signal uh, out there. So if we get a pullback, I think it's viable. I like seeing what Michael Saylor and uh, Jack Dorsey are doing with Bitcoin. I think it's uh, going to be adopted uh, further. Right. Uh, I'd just like to buy it a lot lower. <laughs> yeah. The corporate treasury function aspect of Bitcoin is a fascinating one. Uh, on the flip side of the coin, on, on more of the tactical side, it does seem that 12,000 may be something of a key level. Yeah, it it it, it could be. Um, it could be the level that that we sort of stall out. Uh, I can also make a case uh, on the weekly chart for 16,000, 16,658 exactly. I'm looking at my chart right now. So that's a uh, an upside signal or um, DeMarc uh, wave uh, price objective that I can, I can make out. Uh, the upside signal on the daily, just to kind of let people know, um, from that upside signal, the last one was 12,019. 
So that was the, the exact number that we were looking for. And that was a level that we were looking for from back. That was calculated back in April. So mm -hmm. when Bitcoin was in the 6,000 level, we had a $12,000 uh, target on it and it worked. Quite a correlation. Yeah. So yeah. Tom, lots happening right now in markets, lots of news flow, lots of noise. Final thoughts on where you think we are right now. Well, we have two weeks ahead of election. Uh, we have the bulk of Q3 earnings happening right now. I think uh, being very nimble uh, is the appropriate strategy. Uh, we have a stimulus that's uh, going back and forth. And I think you want to stay net long at this point until something changes. And if something changes, take down more risk. But it's not a market that you want to be levered. It's not a market that you need to be fully invested. It's a market that you can be late getting long if we have a favorable outcome after the election or if the market sees it as a favorable outcome. So I think it's just a matter of right now uh, being very cautious, uh, not necessarily taking huge amounts of risk. You don't need a, a the, the floor to fall out beneath you. Uh, and that's certainly the type of market that we're in. It's an October surprise market. You've got two candidates that are fighting for it. And who knows what's going to happen um, with this election. But take it easy. Don't get too far over your skis. Yeah. I just hope we know sometime in November. Yeah, that'd be nice. I mean, hopefully. Um, hopefully. <laughs> Tom Thornton, thanks once again for joining us. All right. See you later. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.